You're listening to audio from Gospel Collective Church. If you'd like to check out additional resources or learn more about us, please visit gcclex.com. Hebrews chapter 7. We've been going through the book of Hebrews. Um, we're about halfway through. This particular chapter uh, is, uh, can be viewed upon as uh, obscure but important. And uh, I know since we started selling, many of you guys are using, I love that, these uh, um, scripture journals. Um, since you guys have been taking notes, I've been hearing a little bit more regularly. Uh, that, that point was not on the screen that long. Or, uh, uh, you know, a little more clarification. So I love that you're taking notes using this. So for this morning, I do want to share with you uh, three points of these 22 verses. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 22, and three points. You see it on the screen right now. Um, through this entire, almost entire chapter, we'll conclude kind of next week. Verses 1 through 22. Melchizedek was a foreshadowing of Jesus. Again, we'll explain this, but no, first, as we read in this text, Melchizedek was a foreshadowing of Jesus to God's plan and ways often doesn't fit into our personal boxes. I see some of you guys, you're kind of already shuddering. I see already uh, that, you've got to pay attention close to that one. God's plan and ways often doesn't fit into our personal boxes. And three, Jesus in the gospel is our better hope. And so you know it right there. Um, we'll get back to it. You'll see it on the screen. You'll see it from the text. But no, those are our three points as we read the text. Uh, going back to what we concluded with last week in chapter 6, verse 20, here's the introduction to Melchizedek, this obscure character in the Old Testament that an entire chapter is dedicated to here in Hebrews. Verse 20 of chapter 6, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. We need to understand who Melchizedek is. To understand, in fact, Jesus more fully, we must understand Melchizedek more fully. So who is Melchizedek before we see this chapter-long explanation? First, let's read the introduction to him. This is found in Genesis chapter 14 with Abraham. I mean, this is early in this book, right? Hebrews right here is at the very end. Melchizedek is mentioned right in the very beginning. And there's only a few verses about him, at least in his introduction in Genesis, although an entire chapter dedicated to him in the book of Hebrews. Who is Melchizedek? Let's read Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 20. Talking about Abraham after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with them, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him, talking about Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Church, I don't know about you, but if I'm reading this passage, I mean, these three verses, whether it's a Jew reading the Torah or as a Christian going through all of scriptures, like this to me would be a blip. Like, uh, an obscure kind of mention of, oh, uh, Abraham bringing back spoils of war, some priest king blesses him, he gives tenth to him, next, right? 
I mean, this is not like what you would see, the power and life change of Abraham and Moses and Noah and all these Old Testament characters that has a greater, bigger use and picture of our holy and mighty God. Two, three verses that I would think and see God's people like, yeah, there's important use of them. Yes, David mentions them in Psalm. We'll read that a little bit later. But here in the book of Hebrews, an entire chapter dedicated to him and the importance of him. We see through what God has given us in his inerrant and inspired word. First, as we'll read, Melchizedek was a foreshadowing of Jesus. That mention, that interaction between Melchizedek and Abraham had a greater significance to be revealed later. It was a shadow. It was a type for what's to come and for Jesus to fulfill. Now read with me chapter 7, starting off with verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So when it just starts out, first three verses, we see Melchizedek was not just some obscure character, but instead an important foreshadowing of Jesus Christ as explained even further in the rest of this chapter. But let's just see how that's the case in the first three verses. First, as mentioned in the very beginning of chapter 7, Melchizedek is presented as a king and a priest, which was rare and for good reason. The priest for God's temple was supposed to come from Levi, descendants of Aaron. That's why God was angry at Saul for performing priest's duties as a king in 1 Samuel chapter 13. The kingship was not so strongly restricted, but we see Genesis 49.10 clearly prophesy that it belongs to Judah and Melchizedek, that at least I studied and couldn't find, is the only person I could see in the scriptures before Jesus to hold these dual roles of king and priest, just like Jesus does for us. On top of that, the third office, prophet. This priest here blesses the great Abraham, tithes, he gets tithed to, more on the significance of that in verses 4 through 10. Verse 2, it says Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He was the actual king of Salem. Salem means peace, the king of righteousness and peace. Of course, Jesus being our king, as prophesied in Isaiah 9, 6, the prince of peace, how often Jesus said, I will bring peace. How he made peace with us through his death on the cross, his resurrection, where we were one time enemies, hostile, hostility before the God that created us, that loves us, that wants us for himself in relationship with him and to worship him. And Jesus Christ, of course, through the gospel, brings peace between us. He is the king of peace, as fulfilled and foreshadowed from Melchizedek. And then verse 3, as you read that, 
I know it is possible that this means that Melchizedek was immortal. I know there are some who believe that. I believe this more than likely means that this information, as you read here, without father or mother genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, that that information is just not given anywhere in Scripture. That it's in contrast to what, again, later to come, the Levitical priests whose genealogies had to be carefully recorded and how this was unpresented, much like Jesus' background. In fact, that next phrase that you read there, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, I believe that should be understood in the same way, that is, that Melchizedek had neither beginning of days nor end of life recorded in Scripture, where he suddenly appears in Genesis chapter 14, two entire verses, gave you three just for full context, and then disappears. And as far as the Old Testament narrative is concerned, shows no end to his priesthood as it's supposed to be specifically recorded. And so in that sense, he continues as a priest forever, as David mentions in the psalm, and endures beyond a physical genealogy, but instead was divinely designated by God, just like our Messiah, Savior, the prophet, priest, King, Jesus Christ. And so we see, as verse 3 concludes, Melchizedek is a type, a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. And in saying that and bringing that as a point, I don't want you to miss that and the importance of that. Not only here, but the types or foreshadowings of Christ in both other places of Scripture and in life. I know that can be done in a cheesy way. Like right now we have vacation Bible school and, you know, you're going to have the former, you know, the youth pastors or the, uh, the, the parent trying to illustrate Jesus to their kids. And they're going to pick up like, you know, that pool noodle, like this pool noodle, pool noodle is a type of Jesus. You can, it'll keep you afloat in hard times. See, right. Well, they'll start beating their kid with it. It's like the whip of Jesus that when he was being, you're like, okay, let's take it too far. A little cheese. I know that's been done in cheesy type ways, but in recognition of a risk of that, there is great beauty in use of true typology and foreshadowing. Uh, one of my uh, at least earthly heroes that I never met, but influenced by just ministry and, and writing and books, Tim Keller was a master of this, especially regarding the Old Testament. And as much as God has used kind of some of his typology or explanation typology of Jesus Christ, I did not know this until I read his biography a few weeks ago, um, how on his spiritual formation, how it was Edmund Clowney and his work that influenced him in this. Edmund Clowney wrote a book while I was in seminary that we had to read called The Unfolding Mystery, Discovering Christ in the Old Testament that really did change my reading, interpretation, preaching of the Old Testament. And to know and see, again, Keller, who's very influential and so many more, and others, I admit I wouldn't have even seen it with Melchizedek at first if it wasn't for this chapter. But just think briefly of the Messianic Jews that was starting to doubt that Jesus was the Messiah or for those who are still expecting and waiting for the Messiah, and their familiarity with the priest. I mean, 
how detailed and specific everything was for that. But the importance for the king in their lives and the prophets to warn or assure. And for them in all three offices to think of the times, how we need these people. I mean, one would die. One would be corrupt. Seasons where they'd go out with any of them. And then Jesus is revealed here, just like this one obscure, seemingly obscure character is both dual priest, king, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ as priest, prophet, and king. And he fulfills all of them. He continues forever. He intercedes on our path, on our behalf forever. One sacrifice for one time. And how all those things were being used. And revealing of their need with it and for it. And all of a sudden, Jesus Christ answers and fulfills it all. Oh, how beautiful and magnificent the foreshadowing seems as it both reveals and it shows God's sovereignty. And that's what it does. That's what God uses typology and foreshadowing and revelation and sovereignty. Anytime God's revealing himself, it's mind-blowing. But beyond blowing our mind, it should change our heart, just like it changed the Israelites' hearts, knowing they needed all three offices. And God's sovereignty, as he reveals that this was the purpose, thousands of years before when written, or even in your own life, in certain events, maybe even from a few years ago, and it served as a foreshadowing or a type of what God was doing, who God is how he's in control over everything, every intricate detail, plan, joy in our lives, his purpose of things in the past to reveal his will, his way. How amazing that that is. Jonathan Edwards wrote this. In heaven alone is attainment of our highest good. God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of him is our proper and is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. Get this. These are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. Happy Father's Day, dads. You're a shadow. And I don't know about you, but that's relieving to me. Because there is substance that we can point to in our good and perfect heavenly Father. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops of rain, but God is the ocean. I read that, I can't but help to think, in Columbus, Ohio, while serving with the church, I was building a relationship with this, this, this dad that did not know Christ, um, had, a, had a, a child, new father, but was not in relationship with the mom at all anymore, and did not know Christ and was being brought to church 
struggling mightily in his role as a new dad, but hardly seeing his kid, but honestly not living a good lifestyle to be a good father in the kid's life as well. And as I started building that relationship with that guy, sharing the gospel with him, again, trying to point him to how important it is for him to step up as a role of a father, um, we were watching a movie one night. I won't go into full details of everything with it, but it was a movie called Gone, Gone Baby Gone, and it, by the end, just shattered him in the importance of, of fatherhood. That this, again, God used that of all things to show that not only how important that role is, but a leading up to God as our heavenly father, and that's what he needed first. He needed a relationship with his perfect heavenly father through Jesus Christ in order to take steps to become the dad that God wanted him to be. Again, a type that led him to receive Jesus through the gospel, then to later, by God's grace, start to take steps to be the dad that he needed to be. Oh, how beautiful and magnificent these types and foreshadowings are. Don't miss the types and foreshadowings of Jesus and God, the substance of such shadows. And see how this is the case even further with Melchizedek along with the other points. Verse 4 through 10 here now gives further explanation of the offering that's mentioned in verse 2 and the significance of that. Look at verse 4 of Hebrews 7. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these, uh, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is, verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, before explaining this, and actually it explains it even further after this, let me quickly recap, remind everyone the purpose of the offering and the tithe, because a big chunk of this is the purpose of offering tithe, and so we need to know both Old Testament, New Testament purposes, all right? So purpose offering the tithe, Old Testament. It was a requirement of the law in which the Israelites were to give 10% of the crops that they grew, the livestock that they raised, and it was to go to the tabernacle, to the temple. Again, case wasn't exactly the area, but again, God's going to lead to this, reveal this, show the importance of this. That would also include any spoils from war, any such things. 10% specifically as a requirement, mandatory from the law to be given. What many don't know is that that Old Testament law also required multiple ties. One for the Levites, one for the use of the temple, the feast, one for the poor of the land. In fact, most, if you kind of study and read this, it would probably push most believe to around 23% of their total income. 
Some understood the Old Testament tithe, tithe as almost like a method of taxation to provide for the needs of the priests and the Levites in the sacrificial system, and then alongside the other things I had mentioned. Now that's what we see again required in Old Testament law, and you see in the New Testament, as we covered when we went through the later chapters going through the book of 1 Corinthians, how it deals with generosity, and after the death of Jesus Christ fulfilled the law, the New Testament I believe, as I shared that day, convictionally, I believe, doesn't command that Christians submit to what can be viewed upon a, as a more legalistic tithe system, that the New Testament nowhere designates a percentage of income a person should set aside, like it specifically says and was mandatory in the Old Testament. And, and instead, I believe convictionally, as 1 Corinthians 16, 2 says, one should still give, we are commanded to give, we are disobedient to the Lord, if we do not give, but it should be in, as 1 Corinthians 16, 2 says, in keeping with income. Now, I do know most churches, most families, most individuals today have taken that 10% figure from the Old Testament tithe and has applied it as a recommended minimum for Christians in their giving. Um, again, I, I don't disagree with that. And as I shared a few years ago when we went through that, I shared, hey, um, just like any other organization, uh, church has to pay bills. Church has to give a certain amount going to missionaries. Church uh, has a budget on itself where consistency helps. Just like your own budget, just like any organization, place that you work for, consistency helps in all those things and preparing and growing for the future. So as much of a conviction that it doesn't have to be a strict 10%, it means that God commands us still to give and that that can look different in certain seasons. Sometimes that's more into different places and things. Sometimes that's a little less for a season. Now, I bring that all up here because, again, as 8 of the 22 verses talks about tithes in the text, a reminder as Christians, we're commanded to tithe and offer. We see here that Abraham did not have to give his tithe to Melchizedek, nor receive a blessing or an anointing from him. He was outside of what is later to come, the Levitical priest. He already had the blessing. This is Abraham, which he receives the promise himself from God. That one could even argue that Levi and their priests, they tithe to Abraham as mentioned in the text. And now here's the significance of all that and then knowing the background of the purpose and importance of that tithe commanded by God. Verse 11, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. See, here's the importance of this. God's plan and ways often, like I mentioned before, does not fit into our personal boxes. You see, as important as that offering is, was this, even here, before Jesus came, fulfills. This was an altering of their law and ways. An important one but an altering, because it didn't fit in their boxes. Verse 13, for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. 
For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. See, Jesus was from the tribe of Judah rather than the priestly tribe of Levi. Yet he qualifies as that eternal high priest because he is the Davidic Messiah. Called both Lord and a priest after the messianic priestly order of Melchizedek. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That Jesus Christ here, from the royal line of David, belongs to this order of Melchizedek, therefore superior to the Levitical priests. This is why it says in verse 7, it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior, which you'd think be pretty confusing at this time for anybody with Abram, Abraham. And that Jesus does not fit into the box of what they believed and received in the law and priests in the Levitical law. And listen, that's not just an Old Testament, New Testament difference. But shown in Genesis 14 in this interaction between Melchizedek and Abraham and that blessing. Where at some point you read back and like, hey, that, that money, those spoils, that should be going to their, their people. Why is it going to Melchizedek? No, because God does not fit into our box. It's why in Melchizedek's blessing toward Abraham, he said, God is possessor of all in heaven and earth. It goes beyond what they were going to be required to give to, to the temple and the Levitical priests later. But instead, what was required and needed at that time, what was right as this interaction was going to point to Jesus Christ who fulfills like, like Melchizedek was, that prophet, priest, and king. All three in one. Or Melchizedek was that priest and king. And listen, this is important for us to again know, to receive, because Jesus and our God, his plan doesn't always fit into our boxes as well. For some of you in our church, maybe that's church in a certain style and way, and it's not crystal clear and specific in God's word. It has to be to a degree and acceptance doesn't always fit in this certain box. When you travel internationally, I was just speaking to a college student that came back from uh, an extended mission trip overseas and sharing with them that even that interaction, getting to know and working with a church in another country, brothers and sisters in Christ, how for me, when I did that as a new Christian, as a teen, that completely changed my view of the church. It doesn't fit into the box of what I know with Western American church because of that interaction. And just like Melchizedek prayed, this is the God, possessor of all things in the world, moving and doing all things in the world. It does not fit into our little boxes. I love how in verse 16 here, before moving forward, the mention of the power of indestructible life. Again, going back to that foreshadowing, this being a foreshadowing of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, indicating his eternal priesthood. Death could not conquer Jesus. 
Therefore, his priesthood lasts forever, like what was known with Melchizedek. Verse 18, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Just like the laws of the Levitical priesthood was set aside in ways in what was to come with Abraham and his brief interaction with Melchizedek, so is the Mosaic law with us. It's unable to accomplish God's saving purpose. It's why here it references its weakness and uselessness in verse 18, that the law itself made nothing perfect. Verse 19, but if anything reveals our imperfections and our inability to keep it. It reveals our sinful state in comparison to God's holiness. And so on the other hand, we have what it says there, verse 19, a better hope. What's that better hope? Jesus and the gospel who helps us actually draw near to him. If anything, with the law, it reveals our distance from him and need for him. But then Jesus, our better hope, is what actually brings us to him. Something that can actually bring perfection. Remember, king of righteousness, Melchizedek, Jesus. Our great high priest who gives us opportunity to draw near to God through his sacrificial atonement on the cross and the power of the indestructible life in his resurrection. It is why, verse 22, it says this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus is our better hope in the gospel. He is better hope than our functional saviors and our idols, than the things that we expect or experience, even in good gifts like our family and marriage, or interactions, certain dealings with church, or our friendships and community, to our jobs, whether it be in disappointment and failings or great, great successes. And our everyday interactions and dealings with life and the things that can give us temporary happiness are large crashes and valleys. He is our better hope that is introduced as he allows us to draw near to God and actually saves and sustains us. Verse 20. And it was not without an oath. This going back to chapter 6 as we covered last week. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him. And here's the psalm written by David. The only other mention of Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. That although God instituted that Levitical priesthood later, he did not promise its eternal validity. That the priesthood of Jesus rests securely on God's promise and oath that we learned about last week that he will never, ever break because God does not lie. And this was proved in the only time that Melchizedek was mentioned in Scripture. Psalm 110.4 
and listen to its full context. You see it on the screen to the left and right of me. Verse 1, some of this may sound familiar because it's used elsewhere in the New Testament as well. The Lord says to my Lord, listen to this foreshadowing of Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And in that same way, coming from David, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment, ultimate high prophet, priest, and king. He is our better hope. As verse 22 concludes, the guarantor of a better covenant. Church, like we just got done singing, Jesus is truly better. He is. He's better than the false or temporary hopes of this life that can reveal themselves as idols or functional saviors. He's better as that substance to the shadows, the types that point to him as he reveals how he's in control, how he's sovereign, how he's what we need. He's ultimately better as our ways and plans don't always fit into his ways and plans as he is so much larger than the boxes that we make about him. And we see how he's in control the whole time. He doesn't go outside of the boundaries of what and who he is. Jesus is better. The better Melchizedek and the Savior, priest, king that we need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, again for your word. Who would have ever thought or known when reading in the book of Genesis these three passages, three verses, how much substance is there to reveal yourself as our ultimate priest and king. That it was a foreshadowing like many other things in scripture and life of what we need in Jesus. How you and only you is that better hope than anything on this life, even the good gifts that you give us that turn into potential idols or the crystal clear sin that we pursue, the flesh that we feed, and how you can only satisfy and save. And breaking outside of those boxes, Lord, that we put in you, on you, that your ways and plans are much better as you show and reveal out of your sovereignty what's needed, your purpose. We thank you, Lord, how an obscure priest and king can point to our need and fulfillment of you. You're our better hope as we sing and worship you and your holiness that only a holy God can do this and be that guarantor of a better covenant. I pray, Lord, that we worship you right now. And it will go beyond 
this building in this room that we do that we will look at you and think that you're better than all things in our life walking out of here being reminded of your holiness again and that we'll continue to worship you in our interactions and in our words and our living that we will point others to you like you use the things in the scripture to point us to you and our great need thank you lord only a holy god we pray this, we sing this in your name, Jesus. Amen.